scripture is Colossians 2, 1 through 7. If you're reading from the Black Pew Bibles, it can be found on page 983. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Colossians 2, 1 through 7. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you, and for those at Laodicea, and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Amen. You may be seated. Good morning, Delta Church. How you doing? Good. It's good to see you this morning. We're in our fifth week as we're studying Paul's letter that he wrote to the Christians who are living in a town called Colossae. So we call this the letter of Paul to the Colossians. We've titled our sermon series, Life, where we see life in Christ, and we see the way that Jesus Christ informs the way we live life. And last week, what we saw Paul do was he rounded a corner. Um, He's been focusing on the Colossians and the situation that was going on there in Colossae. Last week, he rounded a corner to where he... He took a glimpse of his ministry in the way that Jesus Christ called him and the way that Jesus called him to be a steward of the ministry of Jesus Christ to proclaim the gospel to these Christians who are living in this city called Colossae. And what we're going to do is focus on the last half of the Apostle Paul um, and the way that he's just talking about his ministry. And so we're going to focus on chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. At one time or another, all of us have hit that tipping point where we were working on a project, and as that project drew to a close, we thought we were done. So whether that's you were cooking something, or whether you have a hobby, whether you're a builder or a construction worker, maybe you're a cook, maybe you're an artist, you're building something, you come to that place where you go, okay, I think this is done, I've poured out my time, my energy, my resources into it, and I think it's done, but then that thought crosses your mind, but what if I just tweak it just a little bit more? And so you make a decision in the last minute to make a final adjustment, only to realize that that final adjustment in the end was a complete mistake. Because what you did was you wound up ruining something that was just fine in the first place. So maybe you've been working on that stew, and you've been working on it all day long. It's been in the crock pot, working, growing. You come over and you do that final taste test. You're like, this is good, but maybe just a little bit more salt. And you throw in the salt and you taste it again, you're like, oh, no. Like, you just ruined the whole thing. Or maybe you're an artist. Maybe you're a photographer. One more little touch-up, and then all of a sudden you step back and go, oh, this, this looks horrible. Like, I should have just left it. It was just fine where it was. 30 years ago, in 1985, Coca-Cola found themselves in this exact same place. After decades of success with a recipe that was loved by many, Coca-Cola decided, if you remember, to tweak the recipe. So in April of 1985, they completely dumped their old recipe. The theory was that we're going to lock this baby up. We're sticking it in a vault. We're never using it again. And what did they roll out? They rolled out something called New Coke, 
which is like an epic failure. Like people started doing taste tests on it, and like there's like um, responses coming back from Americans that like this thing is awful. Actually, people described themselves as being angry at Coke and hostile because how dare they change something that was good in the first place. So the public's reaction to the recipe was just extremely negative. And so it was, took two years later. New Coke eventually went the way of the dodo. It, went, it was gone. And then what they come out with, they rebranded Coca-Cola as Coca-Cola Classic. They brought back the original and they stuck with it. So in the end, the lesson that was learned by Coca-Cola and the lesson that is learned by us at certain points in time where we, we have this good thing, we see this good thing, whatever it is, we just learn this lesson that sometimes it's just good to hold fast to the original. It's just good to hold fast to the original. The recipe which had been delivered to the masses for Coca-Cola, that original recipe that was delivered to the public and received by them with joy for several decades, it just did not need to be made better. So they made that decision. They recognized it. They realized it. And what they did is they went back to that, to that original, original recipe. And in a vivid way, this, this illustration shows us the danger of moving beyond something that was rightly delivered and received the first time. In our text this morning, in Colossians chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, what we're going to see is that Paul is going to address a similar issue as he reminds the Colossian believers of what had been delivered to them and what they had rightly received when they were taught the gospel of Jesus Christ by their missionary, a man named Epaphras. So in light of, of this idea of what's going on, Paul's going to issue a warning. We're going to read this in verses 4 and 5, where he's going to issue a warning to the brothers and sisters in Christ who are at Colossae. And so what we see is Paul's warning in verses 4 and 5. So if you look in your copy of Scripture, you'll see that Paul writes this. He writes, I say this in order that no one may delude you, no one may cause you to reason falsely with plausible arguments. Yes, I, I know I'm absent in body, Yet I am with you in spirit. I am rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. In order to, for us to understand what Paul is saying to us in verses 4 and 5, it would be good for us to remember that the Colossian believers were hearing a false teaching, something which we coin just the Colossian heresy, Okay? These false teachers were gospel mathematicians. They were trying to add pre-Jesus and post-Jesus things to the teaching that Epaphras had delivered to them. So Epaphras shows up in their world. He teaches them the true gospel. But then these people come along, and what they try to do is add some pre-Jesus things. They say, yes, Jesus is good, but we can't just have Jesus alone. First, you need to do a couple of things, and then you can really be a Christian by having Jesus. Some people said, nah, you don't need pre-Jesus stuff. What you need is post-Jesus stuff. Yes, Jesus is good. Jesus is great for salvation. He alone is the one in whom God has revealed himself to us. But you can't just rest in Jesus alone. What you need to now do is move beyond the gospel, move beyond Jesus. If you want to grow as a Christian, you need Jesus plus something else. And in essence, what they're doing with this pre-Jesus and post-Jesus teaching, 
was they were undermining the true gospel that was delivered to them. Their teachings were moving people away from Christ alone. They were telling people that it was not enough for a person to mature in spiritual fullness by just having Jesus. They argued that the gospel that was preached to the Colossians, in essence, was junior varsity, freshman squat. If you want varsity-level Christianity, you need to listen to us. You can't just listen to what Paul said. You can't just trust what Epaphras said. That's little league. You want major league Christianity? Listen to what we have to say. And so for this reason, Paul writes a warning to them. And you see this in verse 4. When when he says, I want you to be aware. I want you to be on guard. Why am I writing these things? I'm I'm writing these things to you. When he says this, we're going to unpack this in here a little bit. But when you see that word this at the very beginning of verse 4, when I say this, he's at least referring to what he has said in the previous three verses. So he says, I'm saying these things, I'm saying this, why? In order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. So the question we have to ask, what does Paul mean by plausible? What does he mean by plausible arguments? See, for an argument to be plausible means that the argument sounds reasonable. So imagine if I were to walk through those doors, walk down the aisle, come up here and stand in front of you and go, I want to tell you about the job that I do. I don't know if you know this, but I'm actually an Olympic gold medalist in women's gymnastics. You look at me and go, that guy's insane. There is no air of plausibility about me. Like if I was like, no, listen, you, you need to go see pictures of me. I, I know how to do these. You, you look at me and go, one, okay, one, you're not a woman. Two, you do not have the body of an Olympian gymnast, gymnast. So like no matter how much I tried to argue before, there would be no, there's nothing reasonable in me arguing in this way. It's just so obviously false. But what could be a plausible argument is if I went back out that door, put on a suit and tie, grabbed a set of construction documents and came up here and go, let me tell you about how I'm an architect. I just got done meeting with a structural engineer last week and we were able to figure out the load-bearing pressure points and the right bolts that we need on those joints so that the columns and the beams would be able to support the framework of the structure and I'm going to roll out my construction documents and start showing, you might go mm, he might be an architect looks like an architect talks like an architect looks like he's dressing like an architect he's got construction documents that architects use there might be an air of plausibility to that it might be reasonable that he actually is an architect so it was with these false teachers their arguments to move beyond Jesus came off as reasonable to the ears of the Colossian believers. There was an air of plausibility about them, and we have to ask the question, why? Why does Paul have to say, I do not want you to be deluded with their plausible arguments, their persuasive arguments that sound reasonable in your midst? What was making their arguments sound so plausible? And ultimately, it was this, because their Jesus-plus arguments did not do away with Jesus. Notice they didn't come in and go, Jesus Christ is a load of baloney. Get rid of Christ. Listen to my new way of teaching. He did not do that. The false teachers didn't come in and say, see Jesus, pitch him out the window. Let me show you a new way. What they said was, see Jesus, and there was just enough air of religion, just enough air of Christianity, just enough talk of of Christ in their speech to where it's like, well, maybe they are speaking true things. Maybe Epaphras did deliver us little league Christianity, and these guys are talking about major league Christianity. 
There's just enough truth mixed in with their arguments to where it just sounded legit. And even though these arguments involved Jesus, Paul rightly recognized them as dangerous because they were deluding people, leading them away from Christ alone instead of to Christ alone. See, there's nothing inherently dangerous just about plausible arguments. So arguments that sound reasonable. The danger was, Paul recognized, were arguments that sounded plausible to where the end game actually took you away from Jesus. So Paul says the reason why these plausible arguments for these people are dangerous is because they're actually deluding you. If you look down the road of where their arguments are going to take you, you're going to look down the road and see that Jesus is not there. You've actually left Christ. Their arguments are taking you away from Jesus. And I don't want you to be taken away from Jesus. I want you to be anchored on Jesus Christ alone. So be on guard. Be aware. Guard yourself. Do not be deluded by these plausible arguments. See, the danger of false teaching is that it so easily leads us to doubt. It leads us to doubt. Plausible arguments that delude us away from Christ have a way of crippling our relationship with God and inhibiting our spiritual growth. See, it's not hard to imagine what the Colossian believers may have started to think in light of the plausible arguments they were hearing from these false teachers. Perhaps they began to have doubts concerning Epaphras and the gospel he preached. Maybe, maybe as these people are coming along going, see, I know what Epaphras said to you, but I'm saying to you this. And so if you are one of those Colossian believers caught in the middle, what you might start to do is go, I don't know if I can trust Epaphras anymore. I have doubts about the truths that he says he's speaking. I have doubts about the gospel that he was saying is true. Because here's Epaphras on one side saying, no, the gospel is this. And then you have people over here saying, no, the gospel is this. And here's the Colossian believers stuck in the middle going, I'm doubting now. I don't know if Epaphras is trustworthy. I don't know if it's true. I don't know if his, his ministry is legit anymore. Or maybe they just began to have doubts concerning the Christ of the gospel. Epaphras is standing over here going, Jesus Christ alone. And these guys over here are standing going, Jesus plus something else. And here's the Colossian believers just stuck in the middle going, I don't know what to think about Jesus anymore. I have doubts about Christ. Is it this? Is it this? I don't know. See, no matter how you look at it, whether the false teaching was pre-Jesus, whether that false teaching was post-Jesus, false teaching that produces plausible arguments which lead us to doubt are like a merry-go-round that we can't get off of. You guys ever been on merry-go-round? Remember that as a little kid? Like you got on that thing and you gripped on for dear life and your older brother or older sister started spinning you and spinning you and spinning you and then there you were like, oh boy. And you just wanted to get off but because your older brother or your older sister is the older brother and the older sister, they just sort of smile a little bit more and start running a little faster. And then you get off, you're like, I mean, like, right, the world's spinning, you're, you're feeling like lunch coming, and you're like, oh, man, it's just dizzying, it's upsetting, you're sick. The plausible arguments of false teaching that leads us to doubt, the effects are dizzying. Doubt is dizzying. 
We stand there in the middle going, I don't know, Jesus, is he, is he true? Can he be trusted? Does the gospel have the power to change? Is Christ really who he said he is? Is he really fully God? Is he really 100% man? And we just sort of get caught up in this whirlwind of dizzying doubt that the world is putting forward as plausible arguments. We become tormented by fears that God cannot be as good as he portrays himself in Scripture. Doubt might make us become paralyzed by uncertainty concerning the forgiveness of our sins. We become eaten up with anxiety about whether Jesus was really God and whether he can be trusted with our lives. See, in the end, plausible arguments which lead us to doubt are as old as the serpent himself. They're as old as the question that we find all the way back in Genesis chapter 3 where the serpent asks... Did God really say? So when you go back to the end of Genesis chapter 2, what you have is Adam and Eve standing in the garden in the fullness of God's creation. And God says, have at it. Everything is good. It's yours for the taking. Live here. Exercise dominion. Subject it. Act like little image bearers here on the earth. But there's one thing you cannot do. See that one tree and see the fruit upon that one tree. You can have everything else, but do not touch it. Why? For in the day that you eat of the fruit of this one tree, you will surely die. And then it wasn't but a couple of verses later in Genesis chapter 3 that the narrator tells us that the serpent was more crafty than the other beast in the field, he walks up to Eve and says, what? Did God really say? Did God really say that you would die if you eat this fruit? I mean, what is he doing? He's spinning the plausible argument of doubt. Notice what he's not doing. He doesn't come in and say, Eve, get rid of God. God is a fool and God does not love you. He does not say that. He comes in with the terms of God himself using the plausible, reasonable-sounding words, and he spins it. Did God actually say that you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said, no, we can eat of any fruit of the tree in the garden, but... God did say, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, yeah, you're not going to die. You'll actually be made like God. That's a good thing. You're actually created in the image of God. Don't you, don't you want to be like God? It's a good thing. Go ahead. Take of the fruit. Eat. God would want you to do this. So what do they do? They took the fruit, they ate the fruit, and they plunged humanity into sin and incomprehensible brokenness. See, the serpent's plausible argument cast doubt upon the goodness of God, and it completely spun Adam and Eve out. Spun them out. Spun them out to the point where in the end, the plausible argument of doubt, did God really say led them to the place where they actually believed Satan's lie as truth and they believed God's truth as a lie. That's what plausible, the plausible arguments which come from false teaching, that's how it spins us out into the world of doubt. See, so the question then becomes this. What can you and I do to fight the plausible arguments of doubt? What can we do to fight when doubt just lands in, in your lap? 
when you're at work, when you're at Thanksgiving with your uncle who's very antagonistic towards Christianity, when you're talking to your cousin, when you're talking to your coworker who works with you in the cubicle next to you, when you're talking to your neighbor, when you're on the campus of UIS and you're, and you're talking to a professor, or you're talking to your doormate, or if you're talking to your roommate, if you're talking to whoever it is, when, when these plausible arguments of doubt, when they come along and go, did God really say, is, is Jesus really who he says he is? There's no way that a dead man rises from the grave. When all of these things just start landing in our lap, what on earth do you and I, what hope do we have of being able to wield something against the plausible arguments which seek to spin us out into a world of doubt. Because as a Christian, I don't want to live a life deluded away from Christ. As your pastor, I don't want this. I don't want you and me to live lives where we are deluded away from Jesus Christ because we bought into some plausible lies that sounded so true. There was just enough scripture and just enough Jesus in them to where we look up and down the road we're just gone. This is happening everywhere in the world today. There are arguments being made by people today in regard to the marriage crisis that we're going on here, same-sex marriage. There are people using the Bible as an argument for why same-sex marriage is okay, and it sounds so stinking plausible. Why? They're using the Bible. So what do we have the hope of being able to go, okay, I hear what this guy is saying. How do I work and balance out whether or not this is a plausible argument that's going to lead me to Christ or if this is a plausible argument that is going to lead me away from Christ and spin me out into doubt? I think the answer is this, and this is really the main point of the sermon today. It boils down to this, that you and I fight the plausible arguments of doubt with a knowledge of the promises of Christ. The way you fight the plausible arguments of doubt is with an understanding and a knowledge of the riches of the treasure of Jesus Christ himself. We're going to see Paul say this in verses 1 through 3. So zip back up a couple verses, look in your copy of Scripture, look what Paul has to say. Paul says, I want you to know how great a struggle I have. That idea of struggle, everyone says, is him talking about prayer. He's, what he's saying is, is, I'm struggling for you. I'm agonizing is the word behind it. Agonizmai. Agonize. He's agonizing. He's yearning in prayer, struggling for people that he's never seen before. I've never seen you, Colossians. I know there's a church in a city called Laodicea. I've never seen them. And there's a bunch of people who have never seen me. But just because I've never seen you doesn't mean I am not struggling in prayer for you. And I want you to know how I am praying for you. I want your hearts to be encouraged. I want you to be encouraged. I'm praying for you. I want you to be a community who is knit together in love. I want you to reach all the riches of full assurance that come from understanding Christ. I want you to reach all the riches of full assurance that come from the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. For in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. See, it is here in these verses, specifically verse 2 and verse 3, that we begin to find the answers from Scripture that crush the plausible arguments of doubt. 
See, Paul writes that in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. There is a vast reservoir of riches in knowing Jesus. And Paul's language reminds us that the knowledge of Christ is to be sought after and valued above all else. Christ is the infinite treasure. Christ is the infinite value. To know him is the place that we were created to be. We were created to know Christ intimately and understand him. For therein we find the riches of everything that you and I need as brothers and sisters in Christ. Imagine that you're walking through a field. And you stumble upon a treasure chest. You trip, you look back, and you see the little corner. Something that looks like a, a wooden, wooden chest sticking out of the ground. So what you do is you go home, call up the boss, say, I will not be at work today. You grab your shovel, you go back to that field, and what do you do? You work, man. You start digging into that field. Why? Because you want that treasure chest. So you sweat, and you toil, and you labor, and what you do is you unearth this thing. And you pull it out and you set it on the ground. And what you have before you is one of the most ornate, beautiful wooden treasure chests you've ever seen in your whole life. There is just something implicitly beautiful about the ornate beauty of this treasure chest. It's one of the most beautiful things you've ever seen. Now, what you don't do is merely treasure the wooden chest and just walk away. I mean, this thing's beautiful. You want the wooden treasure chest. It's ornate. You found it. It's yours. You want this thing, but you know there is a hoard of treasure inside that thing. So what you don't do is go, man, that wooden treasure chest is awesome. I'm see you guys. That's all I want. No, what you want is you want that treasure chest, and you want the treasures that are inside of that treasure chest. You know what is waiting inside of that thing, and you can't wait to crack that thing open so you can claim the treasure and behold and gaze upon that value of the treasure that is inside that treasure chest. So not only do you get the beauty of that ornate chest, but you also get the treasure. And Paul comes along and says, Jesus is like that treasure chest. Yes, you get Jesus, but what you also get are the treasures that are wrapped up inside of him with Wisdom and knowledge that destroy the plausible arguments of doubt. See, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God as revealed in the face of Jesus Christ is a treasure of infinite worth and value. And we are called to plunder the riches of Christ. Christ alone is the treasury of divine wealth and wisdom, and we are called to plunder and to take and to imbibe and to use and to know these treasures that are ours because we are in Jesus Christ. But notice what Paul says next. He connects a knowledge of Christ to the full assurance that comes from understanding Christ. Look at how he weaves together verses 2 and 3. He says this, statement of fact, promise. Here's what you need to know. In Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And here's how I'm praying for you. I want you to have a knowledge of Christ, and I want you to have an understanding of Christ. Why? Because when you have an understanding of Christ and a knowledge of Christ and all the treasures that are hidden in Christ, therein you will find the full assurance that lays doubt to death. The assurance that kills doubt is rooted in Jesus Christ alone. 
This is the point of assurance. It is a function of knowledge. The way you and I battle the plausible arguments of doubt is with the double-edged sword of God's word. That is how it happens. The way that you and I defeat doubt is by saturating ourselves in the scriptures with a knowledge of the promises of Christ that come from scripture. For when we know and understand Christ, it is there that we find the assurance that just kills doubt whenever it comes. I love this quote by Sandstorms. He puts it this way. Sin-killing, Satan-silencing confidence does not fall from heaven like manna. Nor do we serendipitously bump into it as we skip blissfully and ignorantly down the yellow brick road to a heavenly Oz. The Holy Spirit imparts hope. The Holy Spirit imparts confidence The Holy Spirit imparts assurance by means of and only in connection with our growth in the knowledge and understanding of God in his word, to which I say, yes. Do you want to go out confident in the power of Christ this coming week, ready and willing to take on the plausible arguments of the world that are seeking to pull you away from Christ in every way imaginable? Do you want this? If the answer is yes, then it is avail yourself of the treasures of Christ. Dig into the scriptures and know him in a way that shows he's of infinite value above everything that the world has to offer. That is how you lay doubt to death. Avail yourself of the immeasurable riches of understanding and knowledge that you have at your disposal in God's word. That is how it works. That is God's ordained way. That is his means by which his people grow in confidence, full assurance, knowing the scriptures, and walking out in a way that makes much of Jesus. So that's good. We can sort of shrug our shoulders and go, but what does that look like? I mean, practically. Okay, all right. The Bible. Know some stuff, get into it, understand it. I understand how that works. But I'm like, what does that look like for you tomorrow morning? Like, what's the practicalities of this reality working itself out this coming week? Whenever you're trying to figure out what it looks like to walk in a manner that is worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. It looks like this. It looks like you and I finding the promises of Christ found in Scripture and then specifically wielding them against the plausible arguments of doubt. That's what it looks like. So what I want to do is just scale back here with me. Okay, I want to show us how to wield these promises of Christ And in order to do that, we need to look down at verse 4. So remember what Paul said down in verse 4. He says this. Paul writes, I say this in order that no one may delude you. So my question when I read verse 4 is, what does Paul mean by that little word, T-H-I-S? What does he mean by this? 
When Paul says, I say this, what I need to go, my, my ears perk up and go, okay, what, what has Paul said so far? Because he's telling me, listen, the clues are in the things I've written to you already. I've already said some things that you can actually use in a certain way to wield against the plausible arguments of doubt. So what I want to do is scale back all the way to chapter 1, verse 3, and look down into chapter 2, verse 3, and my argument is that somewhere in all that language that Paul is using, there are ways that he is showing us the promises of Christ so that we can then grasp those promises of Christ and then wield them in a certain way against the plausible arguments of doubt. That's what Christianity looks like. That's the reason why we do devotionals. That's why we do, the reason why we do Bible reading in the morning. What we're doing is searching for those promises, going, God, God your word is true. Your word is a lamp unto your, my feet. Your, your word is, is shows me Jesus Christ. And what I want to do is find the promises. Where are the promises of God? Where are the promises of Christ? Because I want to use them in a way so when I walk out that door into a world that is completely antagonistic towards Christ, I will have be armed with the double-edged sword of God's promises, being able to wield them in a certain way against the plausible arguments of doubt. So what I want to do is show us at least four promises that I found just scooting over those scriptures, verses 1, or chapter 1, verse 3, to chapter 2, verse 3. So you might walk into your workplace this coming week and hear this plausible argument. I know you're a Christian, you worship Jesus, really? Jesus? The guy was just a man. 2,000 years ago, lived a little bit, dying a little bit. Sort of unfortunate. I mean, after all, he did die on the cross. But really, Jesus, God, come on. Jesus, the only way to heaven, come on. Jesus was just a good man, nothing more. Jesus, good teacher, I'll grant you that, but nothing more. Jesus, good prophet, I might even grant you that, but nothing more. So what do you do when you're talking to your coworker, your, your roommate, a student at school, whatever it is, and they come up to you and go, Jesus, load of baloney, don't need to buy into it. And you start to go, well, I mean, after all, think about what we believe. We believe that a man in flesh was fully God, and that he died, and he was the one person in all the world that came back to life. That sounds a little unreasonable, but the scriptures hold it up as the absolute God-breathed truth, the only hope of salvation for our souls. So what do you do to battle those sorts of things? What you do is you go to scriptures and you find the promise of Christ. One place you can go is the Colossians 1, 15 through 20. Look at that in your piece of scripture. See, what Paul gives us is some of the most exalted language that we could ever possibly find, not because he had nothing else better to do. He's giving us a promise that you can wield in that moment. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Jesus is the firstborn of creation. For by him all things are created. All things are created through him and for him. He's before all things. In him all things hold together. He's the originator. The, he's the creator of the body, the church. He's the one that brings lost sinners into relationship. He is the one who is premier. He is the one who ranks above all things. He's the firstborn from the dead. His resurrection establishes him as the supreme authority over all things. For in him all the fullness of God is pleased to dwell. Through him God is reconciling to himself all things, heaven and earth. He made peace by the blood of the cross of Christ. That's a promise. This isn't just, well, I don't know, maybe this is true. 
This is Paul, inspired by God himself to write these things saying, promise. Take this to the bank and cash it. Infinite, untappable treasure found here in this promise. So what you do is you wield that like a double-edged sword against that plausible doubt when someone comes along trying to lead you away from Christ and not to Christ. Maybe another plausible argument looks like this. This is the second one that I found. Maybe you struggle with this plausible argument yourself. I'm too bad a sinner. You don't know the kind of sin that I deal with. There's no way that I can have a relationship with God. And oddly enough, the scriptures come along and go, true. That's correct. You are a bad sinner. And that's true. There is no way that you can have a relationship with God, comma, resting upon your own strength. See, the gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than you could ever dare believe. Paul gives us that promise in 1 Corinthians 1, 21, where he says, you and I once were alienated, hostile, and doers of evil deeds. Promise. Take that, take that to the bank and cash it. Because what Adam and Eve did back in Genesis chapter 3, you and I, before Christ, or if you were here and not a Christian, that reality, that promise is true of you. You and I once were alienated. We were hostile in mind. We were doer of evil deeds. So when you hear that little whisper come in the ear, you're a bad sinner, and there is no way that you can have a relationship with God. We are to own that reality and go, that is true. I am alienated alienated from God. I am hostile in mind. My heart is in full tilt rebellion against my creator. I don't want anything to do with him. I don't want a relationship with him. I love to do evil deeds against God. But the gospel steps in and the promise steps in and says this. Yes, you and I are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. But you and I are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dare hoped. So right upon the hills of Paul saying, promise, you and I once were alienated, once hostile, once were doers of evil deeds. What we need to understand is this, Jesus Christ has now made peace by the blood of his cross. He has reconciled us in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy, in order to present you blameless, in order to present you above reproach before God. That's the promise. So when Satan comes and whispers in the ear and goes, how awful a sinner are you? You embrace that accusation and go, it is true. I am despicable to the core. But thanks be to God and the promise of Christ that I have a Savior standing before God right now presenting me, actively presenting me as holy, blameless, and above reproach. Praise be to God for that promise. That's how you wield the promises of Scripture. Maybe it's this. Maybe this plausible argument is, is what's attacking you. Can, can I really be certain that I've received forgiveness for my sins? I've struggled with that one. Hello? Really? My sins? Can God really forgive my sins? Paul writes in Colossians 1, 12-14, The Father has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. The Father has delivered you from the domain of darkness. The Father has transferred you and I 
to the kingdom of his beloved son. Just in case you don't get what I'm saying, let me tell you this. In the son, Jesus Christ, we have redemption. We have the forgiveness of sins. Not because you did anything, but because Christ did everything. It's a promise. The dark hours of the night when your head's on the pillow and the day that you just blew because you were living in sin and you weren't walking in the spirit, you were walking by the flesh, you lay your head down the pillow and you're like, oh no. The enemy comes along, starts whispering in your ear, you are despicable. You are awful. Surely you have no forgiveness for your sins, even the sins that you just committed an hour ago right before you went to bed. What do you do in that moment? You don't believe the plausible argument of doubt leads you to doubt. What you do is you kill that plausible argument of doubt with the promise that in Christ alone I have the forgiveness of sins. That is why we stick our head in Scripture. Maybe you don't struggle with those. Maybe you struggle with this. This is another plausible argument that came out of a piece of Scripture, and I just was glancing over it. Maybe you struggle with this one. You can't do the Christian life on your own. Maybe you struggle with just daily, consistent living as a Christian. Just walking in obedience, simple obedience to Jesus. I can't even do that. I don't struggle with my salvation, but I just struggle with this idea of growing in Christ-likeness. And there comes the enemy. Really? You can't even obey Jesus for one day? Can you really be certain that Christ is going to walk with you in this way? There's no way that you can walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him. You can't bear fruit in every good work. And so what we do is we often buy this plausible lie when instead we should respond with, man, I know I can't do this on my own. See, that's the gospel. Anti-gospel is you hear that accusation and go, I'm going to show you, let me show you how I can do it on my own strength. But the gospel of grace comes in and says, you're right. (laughs) I can't even live one day in obedience to Jesus Christ. That is why I need the strengthening and sustaining power of Christ himself. This is why I need to be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. Why? So that I can endure with patience the daily walk of being a simple Christian. See, all of these things in some way point us to the immeasurable riches of understanding and knowledge that you and I have at our disposal in God's word. What we have is a picture of the love of God, for he knows our doubts, and even in light of our doubts, he still leads us to the very doubt crushing promises of Christ. So that's why Paul eventually turns the corner and he gets to verses 6 and 7 and says, Therefore, As you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, walk in him. Walk in him. Don't walk away from him. Walk in him. You've received everything you need to know to wage war against the plausible arguments of doubt rooted and grounded in Jesus Christ alone. Walk in him. You've been firmly rooted in him. Now continue to be built up in him, established in your faith, just as you were instructed. And let this overflow us with thankfulness and gratitude. Tell the church. Oh, that we would be a people who forsake the puny promises of the world 
and that we would give ourselves over to the promises of Christ found in Scripture so that we may walk in a manner that is worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing them. Do you want to see your neighborhood dumped on its head for Jesus Christ? Avail yourself of the promises of Christ. Do you want to see your workplace dumped on its head for Christ? Don't buy into the puny promises of the world. Give yourself over. Plunder the riches of the promises of Christ. Do you want to see Trieste, Italy dumped on its head for Jesus Christ? Give yourself to the promises of Christ. Do you want to see the Dominican Republic? Do you want to see India? Do you want to see these things given over to the promises of Christ? You come, bury yourself into the promise-keeping, full assurance-giving understanding of Jesus Christ. May we be a people who know Christ. May we be a people who are consumed with Christ. So how do we respond? At least two ways. For those of us who are believers, who are Christians, who claim Jesus Christ as our Lord, Jesus Christ as our Savior, the answer is this. You're probably going to find yourself somewhere on a spectrum. On one end of the spectrum, you're probably going to say, you know what, I'm not perfect, but I'm walking in this path. To which God, I think, would say, good job, well and faithful servant, keep up the good work, don't become boastful, don't become prideful, continue in humility to give yourself over to the word. Some of us are probably on the other end of the spectrum, we're like, oh no, like this isn't good. Like, I really don't avail myself of the promises of Christ found in Scripture. So then what you don't do is walk out of here beat up. What you don't walk out of here doing is going, well, I'm going to, to do this on my own strength. What you do is in humility come back to the Father and say, your gospel is good. Jesus, you are great. In you is the grace to find the necessary strength to be able to do what you've called me to do. So you... You go out in the strength of Christ saying, I, I'm going to start evaluating my life, going, okay, I see in this area of my life where I'm giving myself over to the puny promises of the world, but I don't want the puny promises of the world. I want the powerful promises of Christ that come from understanding him. And I'm going to order my life in a way to where I can get myself into the word. Because I want to walk in the power that comes from knowing him. I want to walk in the full assurance that comes from knowing him. The other category is this. You just may not be a believer here this morning. So how do you react? How do you think? What's a takeaway for you if you're just not a Christian in light of what we heard? Oddly enough, the answer is exactly the same. Your hope of salvation for eternal life with God the Father comes from knowing and understanding Jesus Christ alone. That's your hope. And so the answer is the same for you. Avail yourself of the very word of God, which tells us about the very truths of God, which tell us about how sinful man is and tells us about the answer that we find in Jesus Christ alone as our only hope of salvation. My call to you, to your, whether you're a believer, my call to you, whether you're an unbeliever, is run to Christ. Flee to Christ. Avail yourself of Christ. Plunder the riches of salvation and wisdom and knowledge that are found in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, may you be glorified. May you be exalted. May you be lifted up this morning as we think about the doubt-crushing promises of Christ. God, may we walk out of here centered on Jesus. May we leave 
here strengthened, encouraged, emboldened, not because of wise or plausible words that I was speaking, but because the Spirit of the living God spoke in power in a demonstration of the power of God showing that Jesus Christ is is greatly to be praised, greatly to be followed. He is that treasure that we are to run after and to plunder. God, I ask that you would do this for your name's sake and that you would do this for your glory. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.